0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: Many of the eyes uh, after the eclipse was over were on uh, President Trump yesterday as he addressed the nation. Terrorists take heed.
0: America will never let up until you are dealt a lasting defeat. Under my administration, many billions of dollars more is being spent on our military. And this includes vast amounts being spent on our nuclear arsenal and missile defense. In every generation, we have faced down evil, and we have always
1: prevailed. That was uh, portions of uh, Donald Trump's address yesterday uh, to the military, but more importantly, I guess, to the uh, to American and to his base. Uh, it was billed as a major announcement and a major shift in policy. Uh, not so sure we heard that last night. Joining us to talk about that is Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Good morning, Barry. How are you doing today?
0: Uh, Good morning. Little little damp around Kitchener-Waterloo right now.
1: Uh, Well, it's coming our way too, I would imagine. Uh, We can get into that in a couple of seconds. Let me ask you about what happened last night with Donald Trump. As we mentioned in the uh, beginning here, Barry, it was billed as a major policy announcement and a switch in in, in policy towards Afghanistan. Is that what we heard last night?
0: Well, yeah. Uh, look, it's not the first time uh, Donald Trump has changed uh, policy positions from his campaign days, but he kind of acknowledged it. Uh, he went through this sort of personal explanation of the fact that when you're the leader, you know, of the uh, of the free world, the United States, um, that you have to make decisions that are a little bit different. There's some personal reasons. I think part of it is related to his his connection with uh, General Kelly, who, of course, is his chief of staff and who last a son in. Um, uh... in afghanistan and to suggest as he had done during the campaign that it was just time to pull up uh, pull up stakes and leave the whole area uh, was not something that probably he could easily do in that context anyway. But he did at least make, make reference to the fact that he was acknowledging that things are different when you're in the White House than, you, than when they were in the campaign. So to that extent, it was a change, Al.
1: Yeah. his policy, not necessarily U.S. policy, because a lot of what he's planning on doing or what he seemed to be outlining right now is, is really staying the course, is exactly.
0: uh, One of the commentators I was hearing this morning before you called uh, was the fact that, going back to George W. Bush, and then obama who wanted to undo george w bush and just get out as fast as he could uh... and now trump who comes in with a different perspective again that all three of them ultimately are reduced to a very similar position what they are doing in afghanistan seems to be the least they can get away with uh, and indeed, uh, he, there's no longer a, um, a deadline in terms of time. That was something Obama hoped to be able to introduce. And one starts to think if, uh, unlike, not unlike Korea, where the Americans have been in there for over 60 years, whether once you're in Afghanistan, you're stuck in Afghanistan. Not on a huge level, but nonetheless, you are there. Um, and, and that indeed, because to do otherwise, you're opening up what the mistake would seem to have occurred with uh, with Iraq, where, in fact, the rise of ISIS was, in many people's minds, connected to the fact that the U.S. basically took off.
1: One of the uh, the quotes last night, uh, Trump suggesting that the American people are weary of war without victory. And I thought as I heard that very well, welcome to the White House. He's not the first president to find himself in that predicament.
0: Yeah, victory, uh, <laughs> the notion of victory is pretty pretty vague. and he want, Well, some of it, he, he can talk about defeating ISIS and and al-Qaeda. The problem in Afghanistan is really the Taliban and that's more of a, a, a an Afghan domestic kind of operation. The Taliban is not initiating uh, attacks in other countries, certainly not in western countries to the same degree. He also made reference to Pakistan um... it's been well-known for a while that pakistan was uh, allowing people to come in and basically it was sort of a, a hiding place for uh... taliban fighters who, want, who were who were under threat they would move into into pakistan so pakistan was identified publicly in a way that i think most people understood it was part of the problem uh... so you know there were, there were some differences in terms of where this is going uh, but it, it certainly may, I, I don't want to suggest that it's a sign that uh, Donald Trump is growing up and becoming somewhat of an adult. On this one particular issue, there are signs of it, perhaps. But uh, again, tonight, he's going to be off in uh, Phoenix, uh, rallying the crowd, talking, praising Joe Arpaio, you know, the, the, uh, the, the former sheriff there who's under, uh, under judicial criticism. Uh, I, I don't expect that this is a, a seminal change in Donald Trump's Approach to governance generally, even though on this one particular issue, he's showing a little more maturity than he's done in the past.
1: Well, so showing maturity it really means he read off the teleprompter last night. It, yeah, I oh mean, yeah, when he all... he's, when he goes off, uh, you know, and on his own and starts ad libbing, that's when he seems to get into the biggest trouble.
0: Yeah, oh, it's very much programmed. Uh, and uh, look, his experience—the Charlottesville thing—clearly blew up in his face in a way he didn't anticipate. And uh, and again, that too is an example of going off off script, as you as you point out. Um, yeah, the, you know, again, we're, we're, the, Trump's not going away for a while. Uh, he, he's going to be there, um, whatever many of us think about him. Um, and that, indeed, he increasingly he's getting isolated. Uh, and that increasingly uh, there are, he doesn't have all that many allies. And in, in many ways he's, he's I guess, seen as a bariah. Uh, nonetheless, he's going to be president for a while. I don't want to suggest he's going to last out for the full four years. Things may yet happen if there's a uh, enough in the report by the Mueller commission when it comes out. That's That's also down the road. But I don't think we should sort of hold our breath thinking that another week or two of mistakes on the part of Trump and somehow the forces will coalesce to try and get him out of office. I don't think that's going to happen. I think he's probably going to be there at least through the, the, 20, uh, the 2018 midterms. And at that point, we'll see, depending on how those come out.
1: Well, and again, to give some historical perspective on this, and I think you've mentioned this in our previous conversations, I mean, so many people want to draw analogies between what's going on now and Watergate back in the early 1970s. And uh, they tend to forget that uh, from the time of the, uh, the Watergate break in and, and the cover up, et cetera, et cetera, it was two years uh, really before they got down to brass tacks and started uh, impeachment cons- uh, hearings uh, with, with Richard Nixon. Uh, so, I mean, these things don't happen overnight. And as you mentioned, while we're talking about, well, it was Korea, now it seems to be Afghanistan, and of course, then there was Charlottesville, uh, Mueller and his uh, staff are continuing that investigation.
0: Yeah, um, look what it's going to take. This is uh, getting a little bit away from the Afghan issue, but the, um, what it's really going to take is a dramatic change in public opinion, especially among Republicans, um, and that when Republican voters start deserting in large numbers, a lot of them are unhappy for different reasons, and it is, I don't want to suggest there isn't a change. Uh, Trump has lost almost a quarter of the vote that he had in the... Um, in last november 's election he was at forty six percent now he 's down in thirty three thirty four 34 the numbers that are being mentioned but among republicans he 's still fairly popular and as long as he 's fairly popular among republicans although there 's some exceptions there 's a few fishers now in in the ranks but in general, the Republicans are not going to openly break with him and remove him unless there is a reason um, and uh, if there 's a, a heavy report coming out from the Mueller, the Mueller group, uh, that, that can happen, but that's not going to be well into 2018. It may not even be uh, until very much later in the year. There will be an election between now and then. If the Republicans take a real bath, that may change things. But in the meantime, people shouldn't think that uh, Trump's departure is around the corner.
1: No, and, and I think that would be folly, And no matter how you feel about Trump, for that to happen. But your point about him isolating himself, I find interesting, though, Barry. Uh, we saw that happen, of course, uh, with the health care bill, uh, where Republicans? These are elected Republicans. That is in the House uh, and in in the Senate, uh, distancing themselves. Some of them, anyway, uh, from uh, from Trump. Uh, and then, of course, there was the the staff move last year about Bannon leaving the White House, and uh, we, uh, pur- purportedly heading back to uh, to Breitbart News. But some of the tweets uh, that I saw and some of the coverage I saw on uh, the national news networks last week about this indicate that uh, it was not a happy divorce and that Breitbart is a bitter man because he feels as if Trump used him to get elected. And uh, the concern here, I guess from the White House, is that Breitbart may turn out now to be an enemy of Trump and be one of his harshest critics. So he's, he's losing it on the left, and he's also losing it on the right.
0: Yeah, Breitbart isn't going to attack him frontally, but he's attacking all the people around him, uh, particularly uh, Jared Kushner and particularly the um, uh, uh, General uh, McMaster, the... Uh, the uh, the security adviser Um and indeed it's just going to the, the ongoing chaos and friction among the so-called Trump team is going to continue to be in 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 disarray there, there's something else about uh, about Trump that's different from Nixon Nixon goes back over 40 years that was a long time ago but that uh, Trump wants to fight everybody Trump is in fact antagonizing and alienating people like Mitch McConnell and a number of other Republican senators who are gonna be essential yeah, uh, you know, the uh, the, uh, the healthcare issue may be may, may be toast now, but there's other issues that are coming up that he has to deal with. He's hoping to get a, um, you know, the tax reform, which I think is probably co- increasingly looking like a dream. He has got to, however, get a budget. He's got to get a debt ceiling. All that's got to happen with, by the end of of September, or the government is going to shut down. Um, and the fact that he has gone, Trump, that is, has gone out of his way to antagonize Republican Republicans whose votes he needs is really something unprecedented, to my mind, bizarre.
1: Well, and this is what I find unusual about this. And they talk about, you know, Trump trying to be presidential. But, I mean, you don't get anything done in Washington unless you build bridges, and and he's burning bridges not just with the Democrats, but with the party that supposedly uh, he represents, that being the Republican Party. And you've got to wonder how he's going to get anything moved forward at this stage.
0: That's right. That's right, and I think that's what's coming. And indeed, um, about a, m- a month from now, or a little bit more, I think we're going to see a great deal of tension, because typically the negotiations of these issues goes down to the final minute. I think on September 29th, essentially, the debt ceiling has to be passed. Um and the next day in fact is the end of the budgetary year, September thirtieth. So those are dates to watch in terms of the whole thing seeming to come apart. Uh there will be talk about this in the next few weeks, but by that point, by the end of September, the poop is really going to hit the fan.
1: Barry, what about the chronology of this? Because a lot of the stuff that, that we talk about and uh, that the pundits talk about on, on the, the networks and uh, even on social media is what they call beltway politics. In other words, it's stuff that the Washington insiders can can talk about and ruminate about, but it doesn't have, you know, Main Street America doesn't much care about that sort of stuff. But if he doesn't move his agenda forward, if he doesn't do tax reform, if he doesn't get something in the way of a health care bill, uh, that's when that starts to resonate with middle America if if in fact there is a stalemate in, in, in Congress and a, a stalemate in Washington on Capitol Hill about what's going on, how long does it take for that to filter down where people on Main Street start to get disgruntled?
0: Well, again, we so many instances where we thought, going back, I think, to when he first insulted John McCain many years ago now, that we thought that would be it and that the whole thing would come apart. And we keep being surprised at, uh, at every turn. I will tell you, one of the smaller matters associated with the budget, which um, um, I, I think is, is going to be very high-profile, even though it's, relatively speaking, not a big budget issue, is going to be starting funding for the wall with Mexico. Trump has insisted that, in fact, that's an essential part of any budget agreement. Um, And the Democrats aren't going to support it. And, indeed, there are a lot of Republicans who will support it only on the understanding that the billion or two dollars that's allocated for this is taken from something else. Uh, That's going to be, I think, at the core of the fight over the debt ceiling and certainly, if not that, certainly the budget. Um, Trump has insisted, I I mentioned that particular bill because, symbolically, that's very important to the, um, the right wing, to the Breitbart people. Uh, that, in fact, that at least it seems, even though the, a billion dollars isn't going to go very far in building a wall, that at least that's the beginning of the fact that he is, is, is having some positive effect on that issue. That issue really was important. The anti-immigrant, the anti-fear of, uh, of Mexicans coming across the border illegally was a very important part of his agenda. If he fails on that, and I think it's, it's quite possible he will, that indeed maybe then we will start to see the core of the, the Trump loyalists start to crumble a bit.
1: But to your point about Breitbart, you're absolutely right. I mean, that that marriage between Breitbart and, and ultimately Bannon and Trump was really because Trump was trying to embrace that agenda. I mean, the agenda existed long before Trump came along. Breitbart had always been espousing that sort of stuff. Uh, and and they will. If, I guess if they do go on the attack, attack his lack of, of ability to get things done. That I don't know if it's ever going to be a personal attack. They rarely do that. They attack ideology.
0: They'll, but they'll attack the people around him who they feel are are, are leading him astray. And 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 look, uh, Bannon's already suggested that. Oh, there's going to be plenty of friction. Uh, Trump, I think, try to paper it over and make it sound like uh, right about that Bannon was leaving on good terms. And personally, they they probably get along. But the fact is that Trump has a lot of other pressures to think about other than Bannon's agenda, and it was just no longer compatible. And, of course, among other things, for all the talk about the leaks, uh, Bannon was one of the, the chief leakers, and it's become quite evident now Now that he's gone. People are saying that he was one of the guys that was doing most of the leaking to the press, which Trump was complaining and blaming on others.
1: Is that move of, of Bannon out of the White House right now, is that a victory for Jared Kushner?
0: Oh, yes, yeah, sort of. Um, in, a, in a way, I think we always knew that Kushner was going to prevail over Bannon in the first place. Uh, yes, it's a victory of sorts, but I think in terms of, you know, Kushner isn't the, the political actor himself. He's there essentially to help his father-in-law, his father-in-law trusts him because he's family. Trump doesn't trust a whole lot of people, um, and indeed there's that, the family connection is, is, is important to him. I'm not at all convinced that Kushner, however, can get a whole lot done in any particular regard. Kushner, in fact, is among the people that would have been uh, advising his wife, uh, his, uh, Trump's daughter, advising more moderate positions. And for the most part, we have not seen much of that coming from Trump on, whether it was on global warming or on anything else. Um, so to suggest that it's a huge victory for Kushner, I think, is probably exaggerated. In the fight between Kushner and, and Bannon, sure, Kushner's up, McMaster's up. There are others around him. Uh, Cone, the financial, uh, the economic advisor, he is up in that Bannon is uh, is no longer right in the White House, but it's not clear that they are necessarily having significant victories that are certainly going to lead to the passage of legislation. I mean, when we come back to what we were talking about just a couple of minutes ago, I think we are coming to the point where this is going to seem to be a very hollow presidency, where not many people are are sort of paying much lip service to what Trump is doing, and to the extent possible, we'll work totally around him, and that's what I think congressional Republicans are going to be increasingly doing.
1: Well, as you say, he stuck to the script last night, and uh, he's actually getting some pretty positive response in some circles uh, from how he delivered the speech, but as we found out with trump if you don't like what he's saying just wait fifteen twenty minutes until he goes back on twitter and uh We'll have a whole different series of things to talk about tomorrow. Yeah, Barry. he'll be
0: in Phoenix tonight, uh, <laughs> talking to sort of you know, get throwing red meat to his loyalists, and I, yeah. that's probably going to be very different.
1: Sure is, Barry. Thanks as always. Great having you on the program again. Bye bye now, Barry Kay, Of course, a political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon
2: on AM 900 CHML.
1: There is a uh, an election here in the province of Ontario coming up next spring. Uh, three months ago, uh, well, we knew this was happening anyway. Uh, you would have said, and the the good money, the, the smart money, I guess, would have said, well, Patrick Brown's going to be the next premier. He had a huge, huge lead in the polls at that time. The uh, Kathleen Wynne Liberals were uh, languishing, I guess, uh, some say in third place in the polls. But there has been a dramatic change. Uh, at one point, actually, the Liberals had a slight lead in public opinion polls here in Ontario. Now, uh, well, the latest one I saw, anyway, had them, uh, I guess, essentially had a dead heat give or take one or two percentage points, but that's always within the margin of error. So what's going to happen? Is it predictable what's going to be happening in the next provincial election? Uh, and as uh, as uh, an op-ed piece in the Toronto Star suggested right now, uh, Kathleen Wynne is not going to quit and don't write her off yet. Uh, Patrick Brown, they say, has a lot of work to do, but I would suggest so does Kathleen Wynne and so does Andrea Horwath, for that matter. Trying to predict these things can be uh, <laughs> rather tenuous at best. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Cheryl Collier, who is a uh, Collier, rather who's associate professor of political science uh, from the University of Windsor. Cheryl, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today.
3: Thanks, Bill. Good to be here.
1: I don't know if you can predict elections uh, at any time, but uh, this one here in Ontario um, looked like a foregone conclusion uh, uh, about four or five months ago. Cheryl, what's happened in the meantime?
3: Well, I guess there's a there's a couple of things that are, that that are going on right now. One of the things is, is the uh, is the identification I think with the party label versus um, maybe some people's uh, you know desire for change and we know from the last couple of elections that the conservatives have lost um, some of their uh, I think, identified uh, voters. Um, and I'm not sure that those folks that are kind of in that undecided range have decided what they're doing yet. So when you when you have uh, those folks being, being uh, interviewed at any point in time or polled, they can kind of vacillate back and forth. And one of the things we know about Patrick Brown is that we don't know much about him. So uh, I think some people may be a little bit trepidatious at this point in time, making a decision on who they're going to support, even though it's it's far out. But uh, I think there's there's it's there's a little bit of a of a, a softness with with uh, a good proportion of of voters at this point in time.
1: The stuff that's happening within the parties, I find fascinating too, Cheryl. And let's we'll talk about Patrick Brown. I guess we'll have time to talk about all three leaders and 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 their own circumstances here. But uh, Patrick Brown, of course, is is facing some problems within right now uh, because of some nomination fights. Uh, you know, the two writings here in Hamilton, actually, I guess they're going to court now to try to settle those. And there have been other situations like this, uh, which I, I guess is not really good news if if you're trying to be the, the person who's going to ch- be that agent of change. In other words, I'm seeing a laugh a lot on social media now. Say hey, if he can't control his own party, how's he going to run the province? I mean it's it's not it's not the sort of thing that really builds confidence, I guess, for those uh, as you said those are the, are those voters who haven't made up their minds about what they're going to do or who they're going to support yet.
3: Yeah, and and I think what's exacerbated all of this is the fact that he hasn't come out with any kind of like cohesive policy platform, and and there's. Um, pros and cons of doing that early. One of the, the pros is that you are able to define your space. I think it would be easier to to kind of get a sense of what kinds of candidates would be more welcome in the Conservatives. And we know the Conservatives can vacillate, as all parties can, from left to right. Um, and right now, there's I think there are some fights within the, uh, the Progressive Conservative Party on exactly what the party's going to look like, who who really is a, you know, kind of a typical voter that they're going to, to reach out for? Are they going to be a big tent party? Are they going to kind of, kind of, uh, cleave more to the center? Are they going to, you know, try to stake out a position more on the right? Um, and I think that, that does exacerbate some of these, these internal tensions. Um, and I I don't know if people know where Patrick Brown actually sits on this because I think he's, he's tried to ride the line a bit depending on, you know, the riding and, and where he, he can make the most, uh, uh, gains as far as votes go so there there's that's a pro of setting yourself up the con of course is as soon as you put your policy out there it's a target and the other two parties of course are just would be chomping at the bit to uh to kind of uh start to to uh, you know, peck away at, at some of the problems with uh, with those positions. But I think, you know, pretty soon he's probably going to have to do something to to give a little bit of a shape to the party right now, because it, it seems a little bit rudderless at the moment.
1: Well, and in Brown's particular case, situation, I find that intriguing, uh, because when he was a federal member, a member of parliament for the, the Berry area, uh, he was very closely associated with the hard right uh, element of the Conservative Party, On and many of those policies, he's tried to become a middle of the road guy now that he's become the Ontario leader of the the Progressive Conservative Party here, and I'm not so sure that sits well with those people that supported him as an extreme right winger.
3: Absolutely, and so he's going to have some fights within his own party about how far he can go to the center he's going to have to make that case. And and I know they have a policy convention coming up and I know he's been sitting back on making those decisions on what the party platform will be, et cetera, until after he's done that due, I guess due diligence you could say in consulting the party, but I'm not sure if he's going to be able to get them all to sing from the same song sheet, depending on where he wants to sit. Part of this is, is also reaction to where when has gone with the liberals, because we know, and we, we, there's been lots of stories on this. Um, lot of her uh, policy announcements of late have, have really sat over toward the left so much so that people are saying she's stealing policy ideas from Andrea Horvath um, and that leaves Andrea Horvath kind of twisting in the wind trying to try decide where she's going to sit but what what that opens up is more of the center and that's really where a lot of the votes are especially in the GTA um, so any any of the, if you want to make any of those gains and I think the Conservatives really, really have to if they want to form a majority government then they're they, it's really tempting to want to sit in the center. And you've seen Patrick Brown really play this cagey. He's, ever since he's been announced as leader, he's he hasn't sounded like a right-wing politician at all, uh, much more so in the center. And it'll be interesting, really, to see how he, he really sets, sets the tone uh, going into the election. And if he can defend it, um, the election campaign is going to make a big difference.
1: Let's talk about the Liberals and Kathleen Wynne. I find it intriguing that... Uh, the Liberals have actually made gains in in the last six or eight months in, in the public opinion polls anyway, Cheryl, but Kathleen Wynne is still third. And when it comes to the popularity of the party leaders themselves, for the party to be making gains and, and the Premier herself uh, to be uh, in, held in so little regard, it seems, by so many Ontarians is, is a bit of an anomaly.
3: It is. Um, I think you're seeing a little bit of that desire for change that is, uh, kind of reflecting back on when particularly. Um, and, you know, there could be some part of this could be, she has been around for a little bit of time. Um, and, and she, she was around for a while inside of Dalton McGinty's cabinet, so she's not necessarily a fresh kind of face. Um, some of the support for the Liberals, y- you can probably equate that to the federal Liberals as well. Um, so that brand still is is going fairly strong uh, across the country, and I think Ontarians are are somewhat supportive of the messaging from the federal side. So there's that explains a little bit of, of that. I think some of that tension, as we know, you can be very popular, and it doesn't matter uh, at the end of the day uh, for your party if they're not going to vote for your party. And and I'll I'll point to Jack. Clayton, who for, and and even had broadband at the federal level uh, back in the day, uh, you know, they would consistently win the I'd rather have a beer with uh, contest but uh they their parties would would not uh make it past uh, uh you know uh you know the, the the kind of solid support that they uh that they normally get uh somewhere in the 20 25% range so it's uh you know personal popularity can help i think if you if you can kind of marry that with with party support and one of the things that patrick brown's going to have to do even though people may be willing to give him some of that support uh is is a potential leader is he's going to have to marry that to the party being a good choice and a, and a, a smart choice for ontario and and again that that's something I, I hope that they're working on um as for the ndp we we've seen that andrew horvath has been that popular leader that kind of finished third all the time uh and that's been the last couple of elections we've seen that as well
1: well, sure, and and that goes to your point about popularity of the leader themselves. I mean, I, I, Andrew Horvath pulls very, very strongly when it comes to which one of the leaders you like. But their party, the the you know the provincial NDP, pretty much stuck at around seventeen or eighteen percent. I mean, give or take one or two points. But they're they're still basically the third place party in this province and have been since nineteen ninety five.
3: Yeah, and it's interesting that the party is uh, you know has has continued to support. The vision of where they've gone, especially after the last election, I think a lot of people were a little bit upset. That um, that Horvath kind of forced the election, and then actually ended up, you know, not making any gains at all. Uh, you know, when that uh, when that election was all said and done, uh, and and they had it really had an opportunity to hold the Liberals' feet more to the fire, especially if they could have held them to a uh, a minority uh, government, but uh, they weren't able to do that. I'm not sure where they go from here. Um, I would say they're probably in more trouble than the other two parties, to be honest with you.
1: I guess the, the big question right now, though, given the, the, the weirdness of what's going on here with the Liberals holding their own and yet Kathleen Wynne not in very high regard voters, will would people vote for the Liberal brand in spite of Kathleen Wynne? Because that's almost the, the polar opposite of what we see a lot in politics these days, where where a party actually rides the coattails of a popular leader. That's not happening here in Ontario.
3: No, and, you know, there's um, uh, recently uh, John Lassinger came out with a book. Uh, John Lassinger has run a lot of campaigns right across Canada, including in Ontario and including in, in uh, the GTA uh, for Merrill, uh, a couple of mayoral races, uh, in, uh, actually in Toronto. Um, and he kind of boils down um, election winning to two things. One is the desire for change, and I think that desire for change is there in Ontario, but it also has to combine with a management of expectations. And I think right now our expectations are pretty low for uh, Kathleen Wynn. And this is one of the reasons I think that you had the column in, in the Toronto Star today saying, you know, don't count Wynn out because basically I think everybody almost has. Um, and anytime she's able to, to kind of hold. The, the party together and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, come up with some ideas, uh, that maybe some people find attractive. Those are, those are managing those kind of really low expectations and she's, she's really outperforming those. At the same time, you've got, uh, I think there's some high expectations on, uh, you know, the unknown quality of Patrick Brown at the moment. And whether or not he can manage those will make a big difference. I really do think the campaign's gonna make a difference. I would not wanna bet anything right now. Uh, on who's
1: gonna win this election. Well let's talk about where the election is gonna be won too because we've seen this happen in the last couple of provincial elections. Uh, Let's face it I mean Tim Hudak was was supposed to be the next premier when Kathleen Wynne ran the last time Uh, and not only did she win the election of course she won a majority government Uh, and and that's happened a couple of different times now. John Tory was supposed to have been taking out Dalton McGinney and that didn't happen. So you're right once campaigns start uh, you never know where they're going to go but but let's let's talk about st- strategy here and geography because when you look at, at the results here and and I think any political party that ignores the rest of the province would do so at their own peril. but is it is it a, a truism that Ontario elections are basically won and lost in the GTA?
3: I think so, and that's because really uh, Ontario overall is mostly a centrist or center-right kind of party. Think about the Tory dynasty that, that governed uh, under with the Big Blue Machine, Bill Davis years, you know, for years, um, and even... Even if we look at the recent uh, the liberal move uh, into power and, and the fact that they've been there over 10 years now, that, that hasn't really been, except for some of the policy announcements later, that have maybe kind of cleaved a little bit more to the left. Um, they're still kind of straddling the center, and the center really does reflect where most of the population is around the GTA. There are some, you know, uh, enclaves in in cities that will tend to go a little bit more to the left, but more progressive. Uh, we see a little bit of that out, up north as well, um, and then of course you've got your urban kind of or sorry, your, your rural areas that, that tend to be pretty solidly progressive conservative. So um, it, you're right. I think appealing to the centrist voters in the GTA is the ticket this time around. And if, if I'm Patrick Brown, I'm going to say, OK, uh, you know, are my right wing, strong, stalwart uh, supporters, are they going to, support any other party but mine, regardless of where I go. Maybe I should go a little bit more to the center. And I think these are some of the strategies that he's trying to kind of weigh at the moment. Although there is a threat of, you know, the uh, a faction kind of trying to form its own party and having a split. And we've seen that happen in some other provinces as well notably Alberta although they've they've now come back together again so sometimes if you upset that right wing base too much you can you know cause a chisholm inside your own your own party and that can be devastating down the road it's how you manage those expectations whether or not you can say look we're going to get power and it's going to be better than uh you know what we've had these last 10 you know uh 11 12 years that we've been in the wilderness here
1: but that's a th- and you
3: know, Stay with me is, is kind of the, 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 uh, the messaging that you could use there.
1: Sure, but I mean, if you do that and simply say, well, look, you're a conservative, you're going to vote for me no matter what, uh, past elections have indicated, or liberal, whatever the case might be, that that may not be true. If they are really disenchanted with you, they don't switch parties. They just don't vote.
3: That's true. That is true. Um, but when you're looking at a change election, then you, it's harder for the party in power to actually get their vote out. So as long as you can get enough people that want change to vote for you um, and you can make that message appealing enough – to both, you know, a lot of your supporters, your core supporters, that are gonna, you know, that they w- they want to vote, they're not gonna stay home because they, you know, they they don't want a liberal government, right? That's uh, that's that's a kind of the boogeyman at the door there, and uh, they want to because they've had it and they're kind of tired of it, so they'll come out and support you. And as long as you can get enough of those, you know, those those undecided people that may be cleaving a little bit more centrist. Then I think that's the recipe for success in Ontario, and you can make a good. Um, uh, I, I would think a narrative about fiscal responsibility, kind of being uh, uh, a little bit uh, lackluster the last, uh, uh, you know, definitely the last few years uh, with the, this current government, um, and and that is a message I think that appeals to a lot of people, particularly around the GTA.
1: With that in mind, though, you would think then that all three leaders are going to be concentrating. On on issues that I guess would resonate with voters that live in in those large urban centers, whether it's Toronto, Mississauga, Ottawa, places like that. Uh, so you see, win focusing an awful lot on transit, for instance, and 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 the huge investments that they've talked about about LRT systems and buses, et cetera, like that. I, I know that's not great news for cities like Windsor, where you are, or Hamilton, where we are right now, because we want to kind of get our way up into the trough too to make sure that we get our fair share. But but you mm-hmm. would think that, that that these all three parties are going to look at that and say that's where the votes are right now. That's where we have to concentrate.
3: Yeah, and I think that's why that messaging has been so strong. Um, you know, I'm not sure how it's playing in Hamilton, but I know in Windsor the, we do feel like we're in the wilderness out here. It doesn't help that we have. No members in the Liberal uh, uh, caucus uh, that are that are representing us at Queens Park at the moment. All three of our members are NDP, um, so that even makes us feel a lot more out in the uh, out in the the boondocks, I suppose.
1: No, it's very uh, similar to Hamilton. I mean, you know, we've got three NDPers here, and, and Ted McBeacon, of course, the uh, uh, the associate for uh, the premier right now, but he's been there for the longest time out in Flamborough. Right. So, so we 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 all kind of feel like we're on the outside looking in when it comes to government, don't we?
3: Yeah, that's, that's correct. And, you know, they may kind of make the odd visit, but not, uh, there's no kind of understanding of, of some of the policy, uh, uh, challenges, uh, for people outside the GTA. And I, you know, we, I think a lot of us predicted this, particularly because Wynn herself is from Toronto and she tried to maybe play with this a little bit by, uh, you know, appointing herself at least initially to the agriculture portfolio, and to to say she'd be interested in indigenous issues, and I think she has uh, a desire to reach out to those areas, but I don't know if that's that's uh, you know really in her DNA. She she comes from Toronto, and and uh, the party is is very comfortable courting those votes.
1: So, what do you do with these numbers right now, where it looks like liberals and and conservatives almost in a dead heat? You, you can't count anybody out in a situation like this. But, but with the election imminent right now, uh, the strategies and the, and the backroom stuff is probably just going a mile a minute at these stages right now. Are, are they focusing on GTA? Are they trying to develop policy right now? Is that in somebody's back pocket right now? You'd, you'd hate to think that somebody has a blank page right now and says we're not quite sure what we want to be yet
3: yeah I would hope that that's not the case i would i would really hope that um and and I think we're talking mostly about the conservatives at this at this point in time. I would hope they have at least a blueprint of where they want to go um i think it really is important though that they do consult their their uh their party members because that is really the uh the core of of the progressive conservative party that it's not a dick dictatorship party. It's a party that listens to its members, and is supposedly listening to Ontarians. Um, I would think that they that they're going to have some say in where where policy goes, and there, there, there may be one or two kind of of uh, of additions to their their platform once they do release it. That that is reflective of some of those, maybe some of the the uh, more sharper right wing voices inside the the party, but nothing. I don't think that would be core. That would uh, take it away from a, we can govern for everybody kind of message. Cause really that, I think that's where Tim Hudak fell down in the last couple of elections that he ran. And, um, you know, you, you don't want to kind of get caught up in some of those debates that will pull you away from a I, we can govern for everybody message. Um, but yeah, you're, all the parties really do have to, to kind of sharpen that, that focus for the, the coming election, because it's going be, to be a big battle. And actually, right now, the Liberals have the benefit of, of being in government and being able to put some of those policy ideas out there. Um, we... I, I don't expect to see very much different that they're going to run on uh, because they've put so much new that's out there already. Um, so they're they're really kind of ahead of the game uh, compared to the other two parties.
1: It's going to be a fascinating next few months to see how this rolls out. Cheryl, thank you, as always, for the input. Uh, great to have you on the program today.
3: Uh, great to be here. Thank you.
1: Take care. Cheryl Collier, of course, Associate Professor in Political Science at the University of Windsor. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We did a, a five-part series uh, some weeks ago here on the Bill Kelly Show about opioid uh, addiction and the, uh, the crisis, and I think that's a very apt word for uh, what we're dealing with. Uh, on a national level, the numbers are alarming. At a local level here in the Hamilton area, uh, they're staggering. Uh, we exceed the national average in many uh, instances when it comes to opioid abuse, and uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a scary statistic. Well, opioid medications, we're told now in, here in Ontario, are being prescribed with more care and in smaller quantities but we're not out of the woods yet. The report suggesting also that many patients' uh, consumption rates are actually exceeding limits. That can be hazardous. That could be fatal. Joining us to talk about this is Tara Golems, lead investigator of the study, epidemiologist, uh, principal investigator with the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network, and also a scientist in the Li Kishing Institute at St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto. Uh, Tara, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
2: Thanks for
1: having me. You know, as we have this discussion, and I found this to be the case when we did our, our five-part series on this a few weeks ago here on the program, Tara, uh, one of the biggest problems I think we're facing here is, is a, people's lack of knowledge as to actually what we're dealing with here about what opioids are and who's using them.
2: Absolutely. That's been a gap in knowledge for everybody because we just simply haven't had a lot of data across the province or even across the country. And so one of the reasons why we did this report was that we now have access to data on all prescriptions, opioids that are dispensed across the province. So we can really start to try and understand what the various patterns are in prescribing across different regions as well as in different demographic groups.
1: Because I, I know that oftentimes, and I found this to be the case from some of our listeners when we started that, that series, uh, they thought, well, these are just drug abusers. These are junkies. Mm-hmm. These are street people that, uh, that are sadly down in, in, in their, their luck and, and they're hooked on this stuff. Uh, and that may be an element. There may be people doing that. And we, categorically, we, and we know that that's the case. But these are doctors, lawyers, uh, professionals. These are people of all walks of life.
2: Absolutely, and what I found really interesting in our report when we looked at, um, you know, the, the demographics, so for example, the income breakdown of people who are getting prescribed opioids to treat pain, everybody across the board is being prescribed these drugs. It isn't a, a fact that um, it's really only the more marginalized or vulnerable populations who are getting exposed to these drugs. We see that across all incomes, across all ages, people are being prescribed these drugs, which have been shown to um, be highly addictive. And a lot of the really tragic stories you hear are about people who get their first exposure after a car accident, or uh, a youth getting some kind of medical procedure and getting their first prescription for an opioid, and starting to like it, and realizing that they become dependent on it, and suddenly developing this addiction, which then impacts them for the rest of their lives.
1: Well, I had a discussion with somebody just a couple of weeks ago who's uh, about to have surgery on, on their knee. And, and they're fr- they're, frankly, they're worried, uh, Tara, because they've heard some of these stories. And they're saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in a lot of pain. The doctor told me that post-op and, you know, probably going to be on some kind of a painkiller. I'm afraid I'm going to get hooked. And I, that, that's it's kind of the other end of the spectrum. But that's a, a, a mindset that's out there as well.
2: Absolutely. And that's really the balance we're trying to find, because there is a role for prescription opioids in in care and in treatment of acute pain, so post-surgical pain. Um, but sometimes what we need to think about is how those drugs are being prescribed. So historically, after surgery, somebody might have received 100 tablets to be used over 30 days as needed to treat your pain. And they might only need three or five days worth of, of treatment, maybe even less. And so the rest of those tablets, they might have 90 tablets sitting in their medicine cabinet, or they might keep taking them because they think, oh, I was prescribed these, I need to continue taking them and actually become dependent on them by the end of that prescription. So, there's a real push to try and promote people only getting the amount of opioid they might really need. So, maybe only getting a couple of days worth of an opioid after surgery and, you know, being aware of the risks, um, taking it if you really need it, but um, really only trying to take it as minimally as possible for a shorter time as possible to try and avoid some of these long-term risks that people might
1: have what is that threshold terror does it depend on the individual uh, you know length of time and that that concern that some people may have that you know if I do this for a couple of weeks so uh, you know my body's gonna get used to this my body's gonna start craving this I mean you know because th- th- what starts off as you say is pain relief and that's the immediate uh, goal I guess is you know I don't want my knee to hurt as badly as it's hurting right now to the point where you almost get this euphoric feeling in some cases mm-hmm. like this and you don't want to get there but at the same time When you are there, you kind of like it. You don't want it to happen again.
2: Yeah, and that's a real challenge. It can be very difficult to identify who is going to become a problematic user of opioids, who might experience that euphoria. Some people, um, you know, take an opioid and hate the feeling that they get from it and never want to touch them again. And other people really like it. And it can be very difficult to figure out exactly who will respond in a certain way to opioids. And that's why I think... Physicians have to have really um, difficult conversations with their patients, And, and it doesn't actually have to be difficult, but they have to have those conversations with their patients to say, You know, you're going to get an opioid, I'm going to give you a small amount to start to try and manage this pain for a short duration of time, but these are the things that could happen, and if you start to feel this way, you need to come and talk to me, and we're going to try and, you know, You know, go slow and with your dose and not use this for a really long period of time so that we can try and avoid some of those risks. So, let's not be afraid of these if it's really necessary at the outset, but let's be really cautious with the way that we are prescribing these and let's make sure patients are informed because somebody might have a history of substance um, abuse in their family or themselves with alcohol or other drugs and say, you know, I know that this could be a problem for me, so I don't actually want this drug. And they need to be informed so that they can make that decision themselves.
1: I told our audience in the past, though, that because that, that was my situation, uh, I've, I've had two knee replacements, and and obviously post-op, uh, the pain is pretty severe. But I got to tell you, after a couple of days on that stuff, I, I told them, "Get me off of this." It was driving me. I was getting paranoid, schizophrenic, claustrophobic. I mean, you name it, and I, I just couldn't take that. I said, "I'll, I'll, I'll take the pain instead of that." Uh, and that's you juxtapose that with the, uh, the 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 feeling that some other people said, uh, "Hey, I can't get enough of that stuff." and and i guess it's got to be awfully difficult right now for the medical profession right now to deal with this because you don't know how people are going to respond
2: absolutely it's a really challenging environment because pain is difficult to treat and it can be really horrible for people post surgery or post trauma people experience severe pain and really need relief from that because it can really impact their entire lives. And so physicians are put in a really tough spot where they really want to try and help their patients, but at the same time they don't want to do more harm than good by having them become dependent on one of these drugs. So I think it really is about that conversation, close monitoring of people when they start these drugs, not escalating them on high doses. If these drugs aren't working to treat someone's pain, perhaps they need to try something else. They need other medications or other non-drug uh, options like physiotherapy or rehabilitation or other forms of pain management that might actually be more effective for their pain instead of simply continuing to escalate dose in hope that a higher dose of an opioid will work.
1: Tara, let's talk about dosage, uh, because I, I know that, uh, as you saw the report, one of your comments was, was about uh, those thresholds and, and what can turn into not just an addiction, but in some cases, fatalities, uh, because people just, they can't seem to get enough or their body can't seem to get enough. Uh, how how What are the warning signs to know that you're getting at that stage where you're actually putting your life in peril?
2: Well, you know, sometimes that can be difficult. The doses that have been um, laid out now in clinical guidelines, both in Canada and the U.S., suggest that if you're getting more than 90 milligrams of morphine or equivalent, so they've set a threshold for a dose beyond which, Clinicians should really try and avoid because there have been studies done by our group and others that show that once you go past that threshold, your risk of uh, dying from an overdose doubles and your risk of being injured in a motor vehicle accident goes up 40% because your opioids also impact your um, ability to pay attention and your reaction time so people are more likely to be involved in motor vehicle accidents. So there are a number of risks that come with going beyond that dose threshold. And so once you get there, and in our report we found that about 40% of people getting long-acting opioids, so these are drugs like OxyContin or HydromorphContin or fentanyl, 40% of those prescriptions are for a daily dose that exceeds the clinical guideline thresholds that have been associated with these adverse events. So if people are worried about the dose they're on, they really need to speak with their clinician because there are ways to actually work closely with your physician to bring your dose down slowly because at that point, you're going to experience some withdrawal as you lower your dose. So work with your clinician to slowly taper your dose down to a level that is safer and should still be effective for your pain
1: this study, uh, was, was this simply dealing with prescribed medications? Uh, because I know that there's, there's a very, very strong concern and a very legitimate concern right now uh, about street drugs. Uh, and those that, that are, are hooked on this stuff right now, they can't get enough from their physician to satisfy what their body is, is craving for right now, and they seek other places. I, I, are we tracking that too, or is it too difficult to track? What, what's that status?
2: That can be difficult to track. So this report focused on the prescribed opioids, but it did look at opioid-related deaths regardless of if it was a, from a prescribed drug or an illicit drug. And so some of those patterns that I think we see are, are interesting because in some areas, and Hamilton is actually one of those areas, where the prescribing of opioids for pain is, is close to the provincial average, a little higher than the provincial average, but close to the provincial average. But the rate of opioid-related deaths is the 10th highest in the province. And so It looks like in some areas where we see these patterns, it could be that some of the illicit forms of opioids are actually contributing a lot to the harms that we're seeing in these communities, uh, as opposed to other areas where we see very high rates of opioid prescribing, where maybe the prescribed drugs that are contributing to those patterns. So there are definitely interesting patterns here and there's definitely a signal that these illicit opioids are ha- ha- playing a very important role in the fatal overdoses that we're seeing across the province.
1: A lot of the stuff that we've talked about and the people we've talked to uh, with, uh, to do with opioids, Lotera, are talking about, uh, I guess maybe the best way to categorize it is reactive programs, uh, social service agencies, and, and these are all very important outreach programs to try to deal uh, with people that are, are are trying to deal with these addictions right now. But I I, I want to turn it around and look at the other side of the coin if I could for a second. With the statistics that are out there and reports like the one that we're talking about today, how is the medical profession trying to be proactive to make sure that people don't get to that point?
2: That's a great question and I think in my mind there are really two different streams or groups of people we need to think about. There are people who have already been exposed to opioids, have developed some kind of a dependence or addiction, are on these high doses. And for those people, we generally have to be reactive. Like you said, we need to provide harm reduction services and help lower their dose and make sure that they don't um, have some of these kind of fatal consequences that can come with their use. But there are also people who haven't yet had that first prescription for an opioid that historically would have been exposed. And I think that's where we need to be proactive. We need to really carefully consider, do we need to prescribe an opioid in this case? Are there alternatives that we can think about? Can the province... Um, provide better access to non drug options for pain management. One of the troubles we have is that people often have drug insurance either through their work or through the government, and so they can access opioids with very little cost to themselves to help manage their pain. But if you have to pay for physiotherapy or rehab or other exercise programs, that often has to come out of your own pocket. So we need to think about how we can shift those financial incentives so that people can actually access pain management options that aren't as dangerous as opioids and it might actually be more effective for them.
1: Are are those people at the table? Are they part of that discussion? I mean, insurance companies need to be uh, part of that and need to be aware of that. Uh, You're absolutely right. If you've got somebody who's in a financial circumstance where they can't afford something like physiotherapy or alternative forces uh, and their doctor says, well, I'll just write your script then. I mean, that may not be their best choice, but it's the only one they really have, isn't it?
2: That's exactly the case. And it's just, it's, it's a very perverse incentive that we're set up in, in this, in, in this environment right now. So I, I think that this has been identified in some of the national and provincial strategies as something that policymakers need to consider. And I know that there are different colleges representing these other modalities of pain management that are really involved in this and trying to understand how they can contribute. But there are going to have to be large shifts in the way in which these programs and services are funded in order for them to actually have any sort of impact on this moving forward.
1: The other element to this, and I guess I, I feel compelled every time we have one of these discussions, Tara, is is to remind people that uh, in large part what we're talking about here uh, is an effective medicine, it's an effective medication. Pain management is, is a very, very critical part. Uh, of people with autoimmune diseases, of post-surgical situations, all kinds of different things like that. And and if used properly and prescribed properly, these things can be very effective. So I know some people are saying, well, get these things off the street. It's, that's not really the situation here. It's a matter of, I guess, managing it and understanding what it is that we're dealing with.
2: That's exactly the case. We just need to focus on how we can appropriately prescribe these drugs. They have a role in clinical care, and there are times where they are definitely going to be very useful and the right option for people, but we need clinicians to better understand how to prescribe them as safely as possible, and People in the community to understand the benefits and risks of these drugs so that they can make informed decisions as to whether or not they want to take them and they can also know the signs among themselves or their friends or family where they might think that somebody's developing a problem here and we need to really proactively seek help for them.
1: For my friend who's uh, about to have his knee surgeries then uh, maybe the best advice is to have that discussion with uh, the surgeon and say how do you plan on doing this post-op what what is the plan and and have that debate and discussion about the impacts and, and maybe alternatives?
2: Absolutely. And and perhaps say, okay, well, I, I feel comfortable getting a prescription for this, but maybe I only want to ask the pharmacist to give me two or three days worth of the drug so that I don't have this large quantity. Take them only as needed and then speak with his, with his surgeon if after a couple of days, you know, he's still experiencing pain and, and is thinking that the opioids aren't a good option for him.
1: Well, and keep the dialogue going, too, which is certainly uh, one of the things that you're doing with the great work you're doing at St. Mike's. Uh, Tara, thank you so much for the time today. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take care. Tara Gomes, of course, uh, from St. Michael's Hospital, uh, part of the Li Shing Institute at St. Mike's, and, of course, the lead investigator uh, in this study.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.